If you've ever taken a go at trying to grow houseplants, you can know uh, it can be quite challenging. Everyone wants to have the elusive green thumb. Most end up discovering, though, they have a brown thumb. It's just difficult to keep all those houseplants alive. They're supposed to grow. I mean, that's it. That's their only job. Just stay green and grow, and that's it. But it doesn't always work out that way, and it can be extremely frustrating. But the more you think about it, though, you don't really have the power or the ability to make plants grow. And that's what you want, but you can't make that happen. Rather, plants by nature grow by themselves. Their growth and development is actually programmed into their DNA. That's how God made all living things. However, for plants to grow by themselves, they do need the right resources. They need the right amount of air and food and water and sunlight. And provided the right resources, though, then they will take care of themselves. They will grow by themselves. The more you study and learn how plants grow, the better green thumb you might be. But in addition, the better Christian you will be. Because there are so many parallels here with Christian growth. Lord Christ himself knew that. And he often used these plant analogies to teach about Christian growth. For example, in John 15, he said, I am the vine, you are the branches. Jesus is the main vine which gives life and vitality to all the branches attached to it. And we're the branches. Our our job is to bear fruit. That's what our father, the vine dresser, wants. He's pleased by the fruit of righteousness. That the branches, they only bear fruit when they're abiding deeply in the vine. And so it goes for us. We have to abide in Jesus and then we will just grow And bear fruit. We've been learning similar truths over in Colossians as we've been going through this uh, book of the Bible. Now, once we were dead before salvation, we were spiritually dead and cut off from God. And of course, by nature, dead things, they don't grow at all and they don't bear any fruit. And so before salvation, there was really nothing that we did that was pleasing to the Lord, our Father, the vine dresser. But in His mercy and by His grace, He made us alive. By his power, he he breathed on us the breath of life, you might say, and we we came to new spiritual life. And the way Paul pictures this in Colossians is as a death, burial, and resurrection. That with Jesus, we died. The old self died. We died to sin. We were buried with him to the old life and old way of life. But with him, we were also raised up. We are raised to newness of life, to walk in newness of life. A true new self was created. And this new self no longer bears the image of the first Adam, but it now bears the image of the second Adam, Christ. But that image is not yet fully formed. It's there. It's real. We are new, but we're not yet complete or fully matured or or perfect The new self we have in Christ, it starts off like this little sapling emerging from the ground. What needs to come next, though, is growth, spiritual growth. God wants to see us grow. He wants to see our new selves now be renewed according to the image of Christ, to be built up into the image of Christ. He wants to see us increasingly conform to Christ's image, and that's the fruit of God is after in our lives. He's not looking for literally apples and oranges. He wants to see Christ's character formed in us. We've seen examples of that, like Colossians 3.12. He says, as those who've been chosen of God, holy and beloved, put on a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. 
And he says in the negative, chapter 3, verse 8, But now you also put them all aside, anger, wrath, malice, slander, and abusive speech from your mouth. So this is our aim in Christian living, which is what we've been learning a lot about in Colossians chapter 3. We are new. We, we really have died to sin and to the old self. We really have come to, a lot, come to newness in, in Christ. But sin still resides in our flesh. And these new desires we have start out small. And so practically and perpetually, we need to put off unrighteousness and put on righteousness. We need to grow in Christ-like character. We're learning a lot about that in Colossians chapter 3. Now, all that being said, though, as far as we've come, I think still this, this whole idea of spiritual growth can, can be quite challenging and frustrating for some Christians. That's because they struggle to understand in just practical terms what they're supposed to do to grow. They see the standard. They know that they're supposed to grow in Christ's image, Christ-like character, but they don't know like how to actually get there. For example, like how do you become more patient? How do you actually just have more compassion? Is there some flip we switch? Or some switch we flip? <laughs> it didn't sound right in my mind either. <laughs> but how do you, for example, stop being so angry? I mean, they know they're not supposed to be angry all the time, but it comes quite natural to them. They don't know how to stop. And so when, when a pastor or a fellow Christian just keeps barking at them, like, stop being angry, be more patient, just ends up frustrating them because, well, they want to, they, they don't know how. And picture a, a little girl who is, well, short. And compared to all her friends, she's the shortest. And she desperately wants to be taller. But imagine all her parents tell her is just, you know, be taller, get taller. I mean, do you see how, how frustrating, how discouraging that would be? She, she wants to be taller, but like, how do you make yourself taller? She knows she wants to get there, but just telling her to get taller is, is not actually helpful if that's all you do. Instead, what her parents might want to say is if you really want to be taller, eat Right? Eat good food, exercise, get plenty of rest, and then your body will do what it was naturally designed to do and just grow. Now, of course, you can't force the outcome. Your, your growth will be limited by your genetics, but it is uh, proven that a poor nutrition will stunt your growth. So just the only thing you can do is provide your body with all the resources it needs to grow and leave it at that. Hopefully you see where I'm going with this because it's, it's really no different. When it comes to spiritual growth. Now, as Christians, we don't grow by just trying harder. You cannot make your character more righteous by self-effort. Just like you can't force your body to be taller. But your new self, this new self that, that God has created within you, it's designed to grow on its own, like all living things, provided the right resources. God has indeed given us the Holy Spirit, who's like an engine of spiritual growth within us to, to grow us in Christ's image. But the fuel we are called to add to our lives is what? It's the word of Christ richly dwelling within you. This admonition we learned from Colossians 3 verse 16 last week. I'll read that verse again. He says in Colossians 3 16, let the word of Christ richly dwell within you. 
Without wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with thankfulness in your hearts to God. We already unpacked that verse last week. We found that as the word dwells within us, we are to, to use the word to teach one another, admonish one another. One dimension that can take is even in our singing, singing, you know, scripture saturated songs. But the first phrase stands out and stands alone as like standing orders for the church. He says, let the word of Christ richly dwell within you. Yeah, we already use that word to teach and help and admonish one another, so forth. But, but Paul understands the impact of the indwelling word when it comes to our own spiritual growth. And that's something I want to show you this morning. And so before we move on to the next passage in Colossians, I want to come back and do, you might say, a bonus message on Colossians 3.16. Specifically this phrase, showing you how it fits into the, the bigger fabric of spiritual growth in Scripture. And Paul is brief here. He's just summarizing key points for the Colossians. But I think we'd benefit from exploring this further. And this teaching on the role of the indwelling word when it comes to spiritual growth. I mean, that should be like Christianity 101. One of the first things you learn. But it's not. So many people come to Christ. They've never heard any of this before. They're never instructed in like what to do next. Okay, so how do you now grow into Christ's image? How do you overcome the sinful desires of the flesh? How do you become more righteous in character? How do you grow? And do you know this? Can you answer these questions? Do you have it down? Do you know it so well you could explain it in simple terms to a child? I find a lot of Christians just don't. It's still a little bit nebulous, this means of spiritual growth. But knowing the value of Colossians 3.16 when it comes to this discussion, so why not help do my part and add some instruction to help you get it, to help you understand really well how Christians grow. And so that's our simple aim this morning, just to, to help you push the needle a little bit further in your own understanding of well, how Christians grow. And to do this first, I want to take you on a little tour of Scripture, a few other passages that help lay some foundation, build some layers. And then in the end, we'll circle back around to Colossians 3.16 and show you how it fits in, how it contributes to this notion of how Christians grow. So to start, actually, you can open your Bibles to Romans chapter 6. Romans chapter 6. We've already learned some foundational truths in Colossians. For example, in Christ Jesus, we have died to the old self. We have been raised to the new self. And Paul makes the same point in Romans, which he also wrote. Romans chapter 6, you can look at verse 11. He says, even so, consider yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. That's a positional truth. In Christ, we've been forgiven of sin's penalty, and we've been freed from sin's power. We're no longer enslaved to it. Therefore, and this is a big therefore in verse 12, he says, therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal bodies, so that you obey its lusts. You see, now that you've been freed from sin's power, don't let it call the shots in your life anymore. Specifically, though, notice how he calls out our mortal bodies. 
You see that? And we learned in Colossians 3, and when we were reborn, regenerated, made new, that newness applies to what part of us? Our spirit. We've been given a, a new inner man, a new spirit, a new nature. But oldness remains. Where? In our bodies. Our bodies were not changed at salvation. Our mortal bodies are still actually sin-cursed, and they still come with all of these sinful desires. And God made us to be creatures of desire, and he, he built into our frame, our bodies, these well, natural desires, and they're not inherently evil. S- sleep, food, comfort, pleasure, intimacy, the list goes on. And so long as we stay within his bounds for these desires, they are good. But after the fall, our flesh becomes oriented away from God and wants nothing more than to go outside God's boundaries. And our desires become warped and corrupted. This is how sleep turns to sloth, food turns to gluttony, money turns to greed, sex turns to adultery, pleasure turns to drunkenness, control turns to anger, worship turns to idolatry. See, all these sinful deeds stemmed from these now warped desires. And they're just in us after the fall. And then they're attached to our our bodies. One big difference though is that although we still retain the flesh after salvation, we're no longer enslaved to it. And that's why Paul can tell us, don't let sin reign in your mortal body. It's still there, but don't let it reign. Don't obey these lusts. These lusts are still present within us. The word lust just means strong desire. It could be of any type. And they're still there, but you don't have to obey them anymore. Instead, you're supposed to deny them. No longer use your bodies for evil. That's verse 13. He he adds, he says, Do not go on presenting the members of your body to sin as instruments of unrighteousness. But present yourselves to God as those alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. And this is a big component of our spiritual growth. We are to overcome and, and stop obeying these lusts of the flesh. They're still in us, these desires to do wrong, to go outside God's will, but don't let them reign. That's easier said than done. And Paul himself understands how hard that can be. This is Romans chapter 7. So just flip the page to Romans 7 and jump down to verse 18. Of course, for time, we're just hitting some highlights here. But verse 18, he says, For I know that nothing good dwells in me. He says, That is in my flesh. For the willing is present in me, but the doing of good is not. He says that in his mind, in this passage, he loves the law of God. He wants to do good. In his new spirit, he's willing. He wants to follow God. But he understands sin still lives in the flesh. And so it often leads him to do the very thing he hates. And so you can understand how this this remaining sin, this indwelling sin in the body is kind of a big problem. He says in verse 21, of Romans 7. I find then the principle that evil is present in me. The one who wants to do good. For I joyfully concur with the law of God in the inner man. 
but I see a different law in the members of my body waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin, which is in my members. You know, once again, the inner man or the new self that Paul has loves God. He loves God in his heart and his mind, his new self. He wants to walk in God's ways. He wants to follow this God and always do what is right. And that's that desire, that, that's a new desire that's part of the new birth. And if you're saved, you should feel that way on the inside. I mean, can you, like Paul, say that you joyfully concur with the, God's law in your heart? That in your heart of hearts, you, you do love God and you, you want to follow him. But the problem is our, so, our souls are inseparably tied to our bodies. We're just one person. And so there's a very significant part of us that, that doesn't feel that way. That doesn't love God and doesn't want to follow God and wants to go its own way. And that's the, the sin that remains in the flesh. And so indwelling sin in our bodies can stunt our growth. And this can be so frustrating that part of us wants to follow God, but another part of us is dragging us away. And this frustration can lead to exasperation. And, and Paul himself gets to that point. He just cries out in verse 24. He says, wretched man that I am, who will set me free from the body of this death? But then he says, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. And so then on the one hand, I myself with my mind am serving the law of God, but on the other with my flesh, the law of sin. You can see how he's exasperated at his own condition, which, which is our condition. Like you want to grow, but your flesh inhibits you. But thanks be to God for Christ. He is the answer. And one day Christ will set us free from these sin-cursed bodies. Will give us new resurrected bodies, complete with no more sinful desires. That'll be a good day. But in the meantime, Christ likewise has the power to enable us to not obey these lusts of the flesh, to not let them reign over you. He enables us to do that. And that power comes through the Holy Spirit. This is where the Holy Spirit now enters the discussion as we move into Romans chapter 8. And the Spirit was given to us by Christ to help us actually walk in newness of life, to help us actually grow. He says in Romans 8, 4, that if you're in Christ Jesus by faith, you don't walk according to the flesh anymore, but according to the Spirit. And that's a key phrase. I trust you've heard it before. Walking by the Spirit. Walking according to the Spirit. What does it really mean though? Well, Paul explains as he connects walking by the Spirit to our minds and our thinking. Look at now chapter 8, verse 5. He says, for those who are according to the flesh, what do they do? They set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who are according to the Spirit, what do they do? Well, they set their minds on the things of the Spirit. He says, for the mind set on the flesh is death, but the mind set on the spirit is life and peace. Because the mind set on the flesh is hostile toward God, for it does not subject itself to the law of God, for it is not even able to do so. And those who are in the flesh cannot 
please God. And those in the flesh set their mind on the things of the flesh. This verb, set your mind on, means to think. Talking about your mindset, what you're devoted to, what you regard. And those in the flesh happily fill their minds with the things of the flesh. And that just feeds and incites all of their sinful desires. Those desires, are, they're hostile to God. Now, they're the opposite of his will. That's why he says those in the flesh cannot please God. I mean, they're just entirely walking the other direction in rebellion. What, what can they do that will please God? But this should not characterize us any longer. We should be walking by the Spirit, walking according to the Spirit, which for us means setting our minds on what? Verse 5, the things of the Spirit. After this, Paul goes on to explain how one of the main things that sets us as Christians apart is just the fact that we have the Spirit. The Spirit is the one who makes us alive, makes us new, born again in our spirits. And you know what? Verse 11 says, one day the Spirit will, will extend that newness to our bodies. Look down at verse 11 of Romans 8. He says, but if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. What he's saying is the same Holy Spirit who raised Christ from the dead, he dwells in you now. And and one day he's going to give life to your mortal body, which is now corrupt and unredeemed, but One day your bodies will be redeemed. And so really when you think about it, the Holy Spirit is the answer to the question of chapter 7 verse 24. Where Paul asked, who will set us free from the body of this death? The answer is, well, God the Spirit. That will take place in the resurrection. He will one day set us free from the body of this death. That's, that gives us hope. That's good news. Our, our salvation will be completed. But in the meantime, though, he gives us the spirit. Although we're not yet perfect, perfected, he gives us the spirit to enable us to, to not obey the lust of the flesh. To, to walk their way no longer. And that's going to take place as we set our minds on the things of the spirit. That's how it works. You look down at verse 12. He says, so then brethren, we are under obligation, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you're living according to the flesh, you must die. But if by the spirit, you are putting to death the deeds of the body, you will live. You know, by the spirit, we must put to death the deeds of the body. The lusts of the flesh lead to the deeds of the flesh. By the Spirit, we must not obey those lusts any longer. And just the contrary, we have to kill them. And we kill them by starvation, by by not feeding them, by not setting our minds or filling our minds with, with things that incite and fuel those sinful lusts, but rather by filling our minds with things according to the Spirit. That's how the Spirit will lead us. And we're still not quite finished, but let me just already give a little illustration or example on this. Do you want to cheat on your spouse and commit adultery? 
And what, do you think that's never happened in the church before or among Christians before? That sinful desire very well may reside in your flesh. Your flesh is cursed and your flesh wants to take you outside of God's bounds, as good bounds for blessing and marriage. And don't put that desire past your flesh. It might be in you right now. But if you want to overcome, so as you don't fall into the deed of the flesh, well, what do you need to do? Well, for one, as you put to death the deeds of the flesh, you need to starve the flesh. So how about stop watching shows and movies that glorify adultery? How about stop hanging out with friends who encourage your wrong thinking? Stop daydreaming. But instead, replace those thoughts with those that are according to the Spirit. You focus on what is true, what is honorable, what is right, what is pure. How about you feed your mind with what God says about the goodness of marriage and the purpose and the joy of marriage? See, that's how you will overcome those sinful desires that that might just be a part of your flesh. But you can kill them. So as you don't fall into the sinful practice. But you see how it goes back to your thinking. Like Romans 8, 5, it's about what you set your mind on, what you're filling your mind with. What you dwell on is going to dwell in you. And there's just two results here. That's verse 6. For the mind set on the flesh is death and all that comes with it. But the mind set on the spirit is life and peace. Which do you want? Life and peace or death? And so where are you setting your mind? For now, no, just, just file away the thought. Keep this thought in mind. What, what you set your mind on is going to largely determine what you do and where you go. We'll see how that ties into the Spirit's leading. We're going to add another layer to this. Our, and again, our goal is just to, to build up this knowledge of how, as Christians, practically we're supposed to grow and, and overcome sin. Because if you're a Christian, you should know the experience of Paul in Romans 7. That that's me. That should be you. Like, I, I want to do right all the time. But I don't. There's a part of me that just, my flesh wants to go out of God's bounds and go astray. What, what, what are we to do? Well, next you can turn to Ephesians 5. Go to Ephesians chapter 5. If we had more time, we'd, we'd go to Galatians chapter 5. Galatians is like a, a mini Romans. Paul says pretty much the same thing. He had some helpful verses. I'll just read for you while you turn to Ephesians 5. Like, like Galatians 5.16, where he says, Walk by the Spirit, and you will not carry out the desires of the flesh. For the flesh sets its desires against the Spirit, and the Spirit against the flesh. For these are in opposition to one another. That you may not do the things that you please. That just perfectly summarizes and captures how there's two parts of us now. The spirit and the flesh. And they each have their own competing sets of desires. Your flesh is just pumping out sinful desires left and right. But now so is the spirit. Righteous desires. The question is, which one's bigger? Which one's stronger? That's going to determine which one you listen to. And that's going to determine what you end up doing. If you give in to the deeds of the flesh, or rather, if you give in to the desires of the flesh, what will result? 
the deeds of the flesh, which he talks about in Galatians 5. But on the flip side, if you, if you listen and give in to the desires of the Spirit, what will be the yield? The fruit of the Spirit, Galatians 5.22. And that's a perfect way of putting it, fruit. These are results. We often look at that list of fruit of the Spirit in Galatians 5.22. You know, love, joy, peace, patience, so on. And think, I, need to, I just need to be more loving. I need to have more peace. How do you do that? That's like just yelling at a tree, like produce more oranges. It doesn't work that way. These are fruit. They're the results of something else. They're the result of walking by the Spirit. What does that look like? Well, we're going to see pretty quickly how it's kind of like watering the tree. That's something you can do. We'll learn more about that here in Ephesians 5 and and then in Colossians 3. But hopefully you know by now how parallel Ephesians and Colossians are, as we've been studying Colossians. You know, Paul wrote both of these epistles during his first Roman imprisonment. Most likely he wrote them back to back. They're going to somewhat similar churches in in a similar region of Asia Minor. And so, so much of what Paul says in these two letters is the same. These trains run parallel. This is especially the case with Colossians 3 and then Ephesians 4 and 5. Almost verbatim in some places. And for now, just for the sake of time, we're going to only focus in on chapter 5, verse 18 of Ephesians. It's an interesting verse. He says, And do not get drunk with wine, for that is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit. And here Paul mixes metaphors. He goes from walking by the Spirit to being filled with the Spirit. But, you know, these are essentially the same things. He's just creating a contrast here with being filled with wine. So instead of being wine-filled, you should be Spirit-filled. The basic principle behind this is that what you're filled with controls you. This word for filled, plerao, comes with the idea of control or domination. That just helps inform the mention of drunkenness here, which, which otherwise seems odd. You know, why is Paul contrasting being wine-filled with being spirit-filled? And just think, like, why is drunkenness a sin to God? People today will just say, like, you know, we're just trying to have a good time, right? Why is God so opposed to people having a good time? But it is truth. Consistently throughout Scripture, God is always opposed, not to drinking, but to drunkenness. And the problem to God of drunkenness, which would also apply to drugs, is that they control you. Or more specifically, when you're drunk, your flesh controls you. All your inhibitions and checks against evil, like your conscience, are set aside, and your flesh just fully hops over into the driver's seat and is, is, is in control. And that's why when people are drunk, they say and do things that are hurtful that they wouldn't otherwise do. But to God, any time you are not fully in control of your mind, you're in sin. That, that's not his will. He wants you to be in control. And so instead of being wine-filled, you should be spirit-filled. Again, if the principle is what you're filled with controls you, hey, God wants you filled with his spirit, which is to say controlled by his spirit. This is the same as walking by the spirit. Let the spirit dwell in you instead of wine, that the spirit might lead you into right living. Now, all believers receive the spirit at salvation and are permanently indwelt. 
You don't need some second blessing or some second filling or greater filling. That's not what this verse is talking about. It's just saying, you know, be controlled by the Spirit you already have. We can kind of put it this way. You know the difference between dwelling and ownership? Some of you own homes, but you don't dwell there. You rent them out. You own it, but you don't dwell there. So the person who does dwell there, however, it, practically, it's kind of like their house. The person dwelling there sets the tone of the house, the character of the house, the, the look of the house. It's, it's kind of like it's their house, but, but it's not. You own it. It's the difference between ownership and dwelling. You understand that. Look, before salvation, sin dwelled in us, and that's because we were owned by sin and Satan. We were owned and indwelt by sin. At salvation, though, Jesus redeems us. He buys the title deed to us, and he frees us from slavery to sin. He puts us under his ownership, and now we are owned by Christ, and that's a good thing. And Christ sends us the Holy Spirit who is intended to move in and renovate and to build us up leading us to live out the salvation that that the Lord gave to us. But sin is a a pesky renter. It's a hard tenant to evict, and sin still resides within us. Though not owning the house, there's still some indwelling sin in our members. And though we have the Spirit, we still have sin. And so what we need to do is just constantly evict sin from our lives, not let it dwell in us and control us but rather live under the Spirit's control. And so we need to let the Spirit richly dwell within you. And that's going to lead you to right behavior that's pleasing to the Lord. Now, speaking of, when you are Spirit-filled, what's the result? What's it going to look like? And Paul gives a few examples of what that will look like here in Ephesians 5, like verse 19. The one who's filled with the Spirit, he goes on to say, speaking to one another and psalms, and hymns, and spiritual songs, singing and making melody with your heart to the Lord, always giving thanks for all things in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ to God, even the Father, and be subject to one another in the fear of Christ. And this is what a spirit-filled believer will look like, speaking to one another, singing with thankfulness in their hearts, giving thanks for all things, being subject to one another. This is part of the life that's pleasing to the Lord. And after this, in Ephesians, Paul goes on to detail what that life should look like in the home. So he's going to go on to address wives, husbands, children, parents, slaves, masters. This is known as the household code. And when you look at all this, though, this, sh- this should sound familiar to you. As you read these verses, think about the, what Paul is saying here. It, it should appear to you like, I think I've seen this all somewhere before, even verbatim in some places. And And indeed we have, because Paul says pretty much the exact same thing in Colossians chapter 3. And so now we can, let's return back to Colossians 3. Let's turn to the right to Colossians 3. And, you know, with that passage we just read in Ephesians 5 and then uh, Colossians 3.16 and following, there's enough verbal parallels between these two books and these two specific passages to argue that Paul is he's making the same point. He's talking about the same thing, which he is. Notice now in Colossians 3.16, Paul mentions the exact 
same results of being spirit-filled. Colossians 3.16, he mentions being uh, filled with all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with thankfulness in your hearts to God. Whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks through him to God the Father. Do you see how that's almost identical to what he just said in Ephesians 5? It's the same thing. And then immediately after this, Paul likewise goes right into that household code. He's going to address wives, husbands, children, father, slaves, masters. It's all the same thing. It's because the Paul or Paul here is, is making the same point to these two churches. He's telling them just how to grow, how to walk wisely, how to bear fruit. It happens when we are spirit filled, when we walk according to the spirit, like I said in Romans. But you will notice though, the one difference what is the one difference between these two parallel passages? You see here in Colossians 3.16, Paul does not specifically mention the spirit dwelling within you. But instead, he swaps that out for what? Let the word of Christ richly dwell within you. But you see, here's the point we've been working up to. That in Paul's mind, these two things are basically the same thing. They're interchangeable. Now, to be word-filled is to be spirit-filled. They produce the same results because they are essentially, practically, the, the same thing. And that makes perfect sense because how else does the Spirit control us? Through God's Word. Realize the Bible never teaches this kind of mystical, subjective spirit-filling where we rely on a feeling or a word from the Lord to know what to do. No, God has already spoken and he rules us by his now written word of Christ. And what's so valuable about Colossians 3.16 is that it puts in just simple, practical terms what we need to do. What God expects of us in spiritual growth. Spiritual growth is not about self-effort or moral reform. It's about yielding to the power of the Spirit He's the one who's going to change us from the inside out. But that's going to happen as we are filled with the word of Christ. That's the water that makes the plant grow. You know, God made all living things to grow just by their nature. In a sense, it's automatic. But again, all living things require resources. So our job is just to be fueled up all the time. That will ensure growth. And so practically speaking now, like, how do we grow? What are we to do to grow up in Christ's image? How do we overcome the sin that remains within? And the answer is, like you tell that the little girl who wants to be taller, just just eat. We're not talking about bread, though. We're talking about the bread of life. And this is the food the Spirit digests to produce spiritual energy. Realize the same Spirit who inspired the Word of God now uses the word of God to renew our minds, to change our thinking, to impact our desires, all of which lead to new behavior, fruit. Remember, we learned that our deeds stem from our desires, good or bad. God made us as creatures who act according to our strongest desire. And so when the desires of the flesh are stronger within you, 
you're going to follow them and you're going to produce some deeds of the flesh. But what if the spirit within us could grow our love for God and, and our desires to do what is right and to walk in his ways? What if the spirit made it such that we just want to do what God says? Then the desires of the spirit would be stronger than the desires of the flesh. And well, we would follow them. We would walk righteously. We'd bear fruit. This is how it works. And the spirit does his work of reshaping our desires through the indwelling word of Christ. Remember, we start off in John 15. Jesus said, he's the vine or the branches. How do we grow? He said, I'm the vine, you're the branches. He who abides in me and I in him, he bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. But you know that Jesus right after clarified what he meant. He said in verse six, if you abide in me and my words abide in you, you grow and bear fruit. The way Jesus now abides in us is is through his word. And the word abide, it's the same word for dwell. It's the same as Colossians 3.16. We bear fruit when Christ, through his word, abides in us and we abide in him. Jesus knew that God in his wisdom was, was going to place his power to save and to sanctify in his word. And that's why Jesus himself later prayed for his future disciples. That includes us in his high priestly prayer of John 17. He prayed for us. John 17, verse 17, he says to them, Father, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. And this is a major reason God gave us the scriptures. He knew we were going to need some bread, some bread of life if we're going to grow. 2 Timothy 3.16, all scripture is inspired by God. God breathed and it's profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God would be adequate, equipped, you could say fueled up for every good work. Or also that the verse I use all the time is 1 Peter 2, verse 2. It says, like newborn babies long for the pure milk of the word, so that by it you may grow with respect to salvation. I got to put that verse at the end because otherwise it just steals all my thunder. Like that's saying everything. Like newborn babies long for the pure milk of the word so that by it you may grow in respect to salvation. You see, it's not that complicated. As the word of Christ richly dwells within you, it fills you like food for your soul. And the spirit uses that to reshape your desires. Where you start doing what is right, not because of some law, but because... You just want to. It's in you. This is the mind-renewing power of God's word. And it's no wonder that in the same books we studied this morning, Paul eventually gets around to telling us what we need to do. We looked at Romans. Well, listen to Romans 12, 2, which is kind of one of his punchlines. He says, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. That you might prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. Look at Ephesians. What does he say in Ephesians 4.23? Our job is to be renewed in the spirit of your mind. 
Or how about Colossians? Remember how Colossians 3 began? He started off by saying, Colossians 3, 2, set your mind on things above, not on the things that are on the earth. You see how it all works together. And putting it all together, how Christians grow is not by self-effort. It's not by trying really hard. It's not by someone just barking the law at them. In Christ, by faith, we have a new nature. We are new. We have new desires. Just they start really small. They're like that little sapling. The flesh, meanwhile, might be very strong. But the Holy Spirit works within us to change us, to conform us to Christ's image, to mature us. He will lead us into right living. But the Spirit accomplishes this and and reshapes our desires through the Word of God. He's going to morph and redefine what we find good and right and lovely and beautiful, what is valuable, what is desirable. As the word richly dwells within you, you're going to find that over time you will do what is right, not because someone had to tell you, but because you, you just want to. You want to do that. Now, obedience comes from your heart. This is why Paul said in Galatians that those who are led by the Spirit are not under the law. It doesn't mean we're lawless. It just means when you're spirit-led, I don't need a list of commands telling me what to do. The spirit who dwells within me and is fueled by the word is all the guidance I need. I mean, just imagine, what if unrighteousness became undesirable to you, even repulsive? You say, I don't want to do that anymore. You don't need a law telling you not to do it. Just You don't want to do it. And what if, what if righteous behavior, what God wants, became desirable, attractive? You would do it, and it wouldn't be a burden. It'd be, you'd be happy to do it. It'd be a joy. You know, kind of a, a silly but, but good illustration. You ever go to McDonald's, and you see that kid's play area? It's kind of glassed in, or, you know, boxed in with glass. You ever see some kid, like, put his mouth on the glass? He's blowing on or maybe licking the glass. I've seen that. It's, it's nasty. But I have a question. When was the last time you did that? I hope never, or at least not, at least since when you were a kid. Why don't you do that? You realize there are no signs in there that say, parents, please stop licking the glass. But no sign is needed because you just have zero desire to do that. In fact, you find it repulsive. Once upon a time, you didn't. As a child, you didn't know better. Part of you said, I want to go like blow my face on that glass. <laughs> you were immature. You were foolish. But you grew up. You matured. You gained knowledge of like germs and sickness and just respectful behavior and just what's gross. And so you don't do that anymore. But you don't want to do that. Nobody needs to tell you ever, don't lick the glass at McDonald's. It's, it's kind of a silly illustration, but spiritually, it works because it's the same thing. I mean, think about the sin you struggle with. Maybe drunkenness, maybe drug abuse. What if those repulsed you? Jealousy, envy. What if instead you're just perfectly content? Outbursts of anger or rage. What if you were so at peace, you, you never felt just the desire to blow up? What if within you, you see someone in need and just compassion is there, just rises up within you. You don't need someone to tell you, go show kindness to that person. 
It's in you and you want to do it and you go do it. That's maturity. And it's brought about as the Spirit reshapes us. And that's brought about as we let the Word of Christ richly dwell within us. So if you leave here this morning and if, if this makes sense to you and you now want to grow, hopefully you know what to do. Practically speaking, it should be simple. Read your Bible. Now, seriously, though, find out what is this word of Christ? What's it all about? What does it actually say? And then discover what, what is this life-changing power it, it's supposed to have? Why don't you begin with starting a, a daily, not weekly or monthly, a daily habit of time in the word, morning, evening. Just let it saturate your life. Start reading the Bible. But don't just stop at reading. Add to that studying the Bible, meditating on the Bible. And that just means thinking about the Bible. Don't think Eastern meditation, that's, that's the opposite. That's where you're thinking about nothing and emptying your mind. Biblically, that, that's of no value. Rather, biblical meditation is the exact opposite. It's about filling your mind with scripture and then just thinking about it. You're exploring it in your mind. You're, you're understanding it. You're drawing implications. You're just letting it change you. This takes time, by the way. There, there are no shortcuts to that. You have to get to the point where I, you want to change. I need to spend some time seeking Christ in his word. Let it richly dwell within you. You can add to that, you know, listening to the Bible preached or reading the Bible explained. This is the value of sermons or Christian books. They reflect one man's meditation on scripture. You have to be discerning. But, but good scripture-centered sermons or books are excellent means of just letting the word of Christ richly dwell within you. I need all the input I can get. Give me more. If you have a commute or house chores or just free time, why don't you consider adding to a habit of life, listening to the word preached or reading Christian literature. You're going to find how that will start changing the way you think See the world. It's going to change how you, you value things. What you find desirable, perhaps unbeknownst to you, that's the Spirit conforming you as the Word fills you. And why don't you add to that memorizing the Bible. Like Psalm 119, verse 11, Your word I have treasured in my heart, that I may not sin against you. Let the Word dwell in you permanently. This is especially helpful when you're memorizing key verses that help convict you with your sin struggles. Where is your flesh the strongest? How is it tempting you the, the most? You, you, you pair that with powerful verses and watch the Spirit. Just, it's amazing how he brings them to mind to convict and correct and guard you. I mean, what if the next time you were tempted to lust, like 1 Thessalonians 4.3 just popped into your brain, right? But this is the will of God, your sanctification. That is, you abstain from sexual morality. I mean, if that verse popped in your mind, you think it would help renew your mind and, and check your desires that you would not fall into sinful deeds. Finally, we can say pray the Bible. Turn its thoughts and prayers into your thoughts and prayers. I mean, you go to God and worship, but also just ask for help in dependence. And ultimately, we need God's help to grow. The Spirit is willing the flesh is weak, so watch and pray. God will finish the good work he began in us. And he will be faithful to fully conform us to his image in that day, even give us new bodies. He'll be faithful.
But in this life, he's given us a role to play, and it's to renew your mind. All too many Christians even are losing the battle of the mind as they're being more conformed to the culture in their thinking. They're being filled with too much of the culture. And that's bad food. And it's going to lead to weak trees and stunted growth. Some of those trees may fall. But you must not lose the war of influence over your mind. And so set your mind on things above where Christ is. And one day we will go to him. One day we will dwell with him there. But for now, he comes to dwell with us. And he dwells with us by his spirit and through his word. And so may we never neglect just spending time dwelling with the Savior just by letting his word richly dwell within us. And that is how we grow. Let's pray. Our gracious Lord, we, we thank you for your word. As we read this morning in Psalm 19, it, it's rich. It's treasure. It, it's better than gold to us. For in it, our eyes are enlightened. We see the way, the truth, and the life. That's found in a person. It's found in Christ Jesus, the Savior, who came and, and died for us and rose again, that we might have new and everlasting life, uh, everlasting life, that we might be forgiven of our sins. We all know in our heart of hearts how much we go astray and wander from you and your will, what is good, what is right, what is true. In our fallen natures, we want nothing to do with that. And we hate you. We want to go our own way. But we thank you for your greater love and your mercy toward us. That even though we were still enemies, you sent Christ to die for us and to buy us. He purchased us. He now owns us. He's even given us a new spirit. He's given us his spirit to dwell within us. You've done so much for us, Lord, to save us. And you're still not finished. But now you've given us a part to play as we live with mission, to worship you, to witness to the world, to walk in holiness. You give us a part to play. You render us aid through your spirit. And our part is to let that word fill us. We, we need to water the tree. We need to fertilize. That comes through the word of Christ. It's simple, really, when you think about it. And it's effective. Well, we just need this resolve. We need this to, to change us, that we can make these habits. And too many days go by where we forsake you. We forsake your word. Like Martha, we're, we're too busy doing other things. But may we be like Mary, just sitting at the feet of Christ, learning from the master. Fill us with your word. That's how you will shape us and, and change us as your church, that we would worship, walk, and witness in a way that's pleasing to you. We thank you for the word of Christ. May it richly dwell in us this morning and every day, not just on Sundays, and change us by it. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.